Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Okay, Joe Cohen, glad to have you on, the founder of Self Decode. I want to hear what's up in the cutting edge world of genetic testing and then how we can apply those insights to everyday life. And you had some really interesting uh, uh, insights that you shared with me before the show about how your, uh, your mood can be um, you know, aligned with your genes and uh, just learning more about your particulars to, to make life work for you. So thanks for sharing with us. Yeah, so uh, I, thank you for having me. Uh, so just to go over the basics, I think people need to start to be aware that essentially whatever topic you're talking about, there's influence in your genes, right? Um, you could talk about something like longevity and, you know, there's these people who live, you know, old and they don't necessarily do all the right things, right? And there's, you have news stories about a person who's like 113 years old and got over COVID. Now, there's some of that has to, it always has to do with two things, right? Your lifestyle, your diet, you know, things that you're doing to be healthier, but also your genetics. And there's the intersection of those two things as well, right? Because we also know that, you know, for any given topic, whether it's longevity, mood, uh, cognitive function, diet or whatever, there's people who do better on one thing than another right? There's, 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 you know, um, and that's why you have like, uh, different competing ideas because sometimes people do better on one thing. Like if I, I, it's, it's my belief that if everyone did amazing on one approach, then that would just be universal, right? Well, you know, this exact approach works for everybody. Everybody needs to do it. And, uh, so, Obviously, there's differences, and you have to try to uh, first. You got to understand yourself, understand what is going on, and then you need a best fit approach based on your genetics and where you're at currently, which you can usually uh, tell based on your symptoms and lab results. Yeah, I'm. I'm curious. You know, you hear that. Uh, comment bantered about that, oh, you know, keto works for some people and for others, they need uh, more carbs. And, um, you know, same with, uh, you know, training principles. Well, uh, you know, sometimes I I wonder, um, you know, how individualized things need to be. And then how, you know, there there might be some more universal things that we're we're kind of ignoring, like, um, you know, probably everyone would do better to cut sugar out of their diet and you can't rationalize out of that saying that, you know, your, your genetics uh, respond better to sugar. So I'm just wondering where those cutoff points are. Oh, that's a, that's a really good question. So there are things that generally are good, you know, good tips for, for people, right? Um, you know, something like cutting out sugar is a good idea for, for people, right? I mean, the fact is that that the vast majority of people eat too much sugar, and uh, you know, pro- and they're eating too much carbs in general, probably, right? 
Uh, and I'm a fan of uh, keto and paleo. Those, you know, that, that's what I do for myself. But I also see people are trying, some people try paleo and keto. And whether it either doesn't work for them or they need a certain variety of it, right? Maybe they need more carbs, more fruits. Uh, maybe sometimes they need more starches. It could be tubers. Uh, sometimes it could be grains. But, you know, there, there, there is, um, you know, the, there is a common there there are a lot of things that are are just good ideas in general right exercise in general is a good idea but then sometimes you go into the specifics and <clears throat> what you'll see for example is there are people who are eating not the healthiest diet and their blood sugar is actually pretty decent their hba1c is pretty decent and they have good genetics when it comes to blood sugar they might not have good genetics when it comes to something else Right, it could be good for blood sugar, bad for longevity, or bad for uh, weight. Right? I mean, there's, uh, there's, you know, people. There's no such thing as having good genes just in every topic. What usually happens is that there's a genetic weakness, and when there's an unhealthy lifestyle or dietary, uh, you know, uh, interaction or toxin interaction what you get is that weakness starts to show over time as the body kind of overall gets weaker as people age, there's more things that could go wrong and the weakest part starts to show first. And so I agree. Uh, th there's no contradiction that, you know, there's generally good ideas to work with. Right. And when it comes to the generally good ideas, I also think a lot of these generally good ideas ever, you know, these are the ideas that a lot of people know, but they have a hard time implementing it. And one of the things that we do is we show people why it's important based on their genes. Uh, if maybe like, if it's particular that you're going to have higher blood sugar based on if you're eating a lot of sugar, then it's showing you that you need to even be more careful. And then it becomes like a motivating factor. So, we have ad enough advancement where we can identify uh, certain genetic profiles, your, your report, your score, and that's going to predict um, higher risk for heart disease, cancer, uh, problems with uh, you know, type 2 diabetes, whatever, even down the line, even when they, don't, they show a good glucose number right now. Yeah, so there, genetics is an evolving field, and we're not at the point where we can understand, let's say, 100% of your genetic risk for something. And it's also important to know that there's a genetic risk and there's a, uh, there's a non-genetic risk, essentially, right? So your genetics can't know if you were born premature or there was some environmental factor, you're exposed to some toxin or you're, what diet you're eating or how old you are or, you know, there's any number of factors. Where do you live? There's just any number of factors that uh, can influence what will happen. So there's the, genetics will never be 100%. It's important to know that. Even if they know, even if there's a perfect knowledge of genetics, which there isn't now, right? It, you know, we're probably at like a 30% knowledge or something like that. There's, 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 a, there's a fair bit to go, to be honest. Right, uh, even with the with the with the genetic space, and thirty percent is just a random number. But you know, it, it, just to show you that there is a, a bit to go. But 
let's say there's 30%, uh, th- th- there's still a lot of nuggets that you can take from your genetics, number one. And that's kind of how you want to think about it. It's, you know, th- there's enough information in genetics to get valuable insights from it. That's the stage we're at. It's not, there's not enough information to be able to diagnose or tell you with a very high degree of certainty what your risk is for a given disease, right? You have to look at other factors plus your labs. And that's what we're doing as well. We, we're, we have uh, lab results on self-decode as well. And then we're integrating other factors. So if you, get to, if you talk about something like COVID, we have a genetics report, and then we have a, you know, uh, basically a non-genetics risk profile. And that's based on all the other factors that have been found to influence uh, your, your, your risk of you know, COVID, like the symptom severity, hospitalization, and death from COVID. Right. Obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, all that. But you're saying there's a genetic um, uh, factor that can get thrown into that scoreboard along with your waistline and the other uh, oh, unhealthy course. lifestyle practices that put you at risk? Of course, of course. So uh, when it comes to the genetics, there's genetics that influence how likely you are to contract it. Um, so, you know, there's no, there's no way to, if you're exposed to enough of the virus, pretty much 99% of the people or more are going to get it, right? That's not the question. The question is, if you're walking down the street and there's one random virus particle that hits you, and there's random virus particles all over the place, right? How likely are you to get it from one or 10 or 100 or a million virus particles versus a billion, right? It, you know, it's the, the quantity, that, that's, that's where it has an impact. So there is a, so the risk of getting it is impacted by your genetics. And specifically, there's the ACE2 gene uh, there's, you know, there's the, uh, TMPRSS2 gene. And these basically are kind of like the gateways in your cells that where, you know, coronavirus enters through. And if the gateway is built a certain way, then it's easier. And if it's built a different way, it's harder. So, but if there's enough virus particles, you will get it right. Um, that's why, you know, when it comes to the only way to really, if you want to be a hundred percent, you know, you got to be in like an isolated tube or, you know, if you, the, the, the biggest things would be like, you know, staying a certain distance from people, uh, you know, and it's just all about like the more measures you take, the less likely you, you are to get it. So if you have a mask that blocks out some virus particles, uh, you know, social distancing, all the things like that. And, you know, washing your hands really well, right? Because even if one or two virus particles remain or whatever, it doesn't mean you'll get sick from it. But it's really the number of virus particles and then, you know, how likely you are to get it based on your genetics. So that that has an impact. And then there's also an impact on the severity of it uh, in in terms of your genetics. So, you know, there's, um, you know, a lot of, you know, there's a fair number of people that don't get symptoms, asymptomatic. And then there's a fair number of people that they get symptoms. And then, um, you know, out of those people, there's a fair number of people that get it really bad. And some of these people could be healthy. Now, obviously, if you're very healthy, that is a, a, a great way to reduce your risk, right? It's really, like you said, um, a lot of these 
comorbidities or uh, you know conditions that kind of indicate that someone's unhealthy are going to be very significant risk factors of having severe issues from it. Right. So it is something where you know there there is a, a genetic component and there's also a uh, strong lifestyle component. Just like sure. uh, a lot of, uh, basically pretty much every topic. Every topic, yeah. I mean, uh, I'm fascinated with finding out insights for athletic training. And I'm referencing back to my time when I was a professional triathlete training really hard and asking the most of my body every day and, and traveling around for nine years on the circuit. And I was so frustrated because I couldn't reach the same training level as a lot of my peers, like in terms of the hours of week of pounding the muscles and pedaling the bicycle. And, you know, I had to learn kind of the hard way from flaming out that I, I couldn't compare or try to align my you know, my own patterns with the person that I want to beat in the race. And, you know, I had fair, fair amount of success. I was able to compete with, you know, different people on the race course that trained drastically different than I did because they figured out what worked for them. Obviously, they were performing at the elite level. So something was working for all of us. But um, boy, the more, you know, the more I could learn about my genetics and then plug those in. And of course, I had nothing back then. And I talk about my I took a test from DNA Fit, and it came out that I was uh, like fifty-six percent strength, power, uh, muscle makeup, and forty-four percent endurance. And I was shocked because I was always a pure endurance athlete. But knowing that insight and being able to plug that in years ago, I would have, you know, been able to change my training to have, you know, more more rest and downtime on account of, you know, my muscle fiber makeup was different than a pure endurance athlete. So I wonder if we've progressed from, uh, that was even a few years ago, where you can actually have an athlete go in there and get tested and maybe even direct them to, uh, not necessarily the sport, because I think the, the love of the sport is the main thing, but you know, kind of uh, help align their, their training patterns with some genetic profiling. Yeah, definitely. So we have a fitness report as well. And, fitness uh, report, it's, yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, it's similar. It tells you... Uh, you know, information related to fitness and, uh, you know, maybe how likely you are to get injured is certain injuries and uh, what certain things might be better to help your, uh, you know, uh, performance. So uh, definitely there's, you know, um, and, and, you know, these things are being updated all the time. And, you know, for fitness people, you also want to look at lab tests a lot because they can also be an indicator of how healthy you are um, and, and how, like, basically when you're doing fitness, you're really doing something that is kind of uh, most likely not the, you know, it's out of the norm in terms of, you know, we're talking about like uh, elite training, like, you know, very, very competitive training. Uh, that's kind of not the norm exactly. And so you really need to monitor your body better. You know, I, if I was doing that, I would take quarterly or, you know, at least uh, once every six months blood tests and, and monitor that. And what we do with self-decode also is we allow you to see what is in the optimal range, right? And so if you see something's out of the optimal range, you could flag it and try to maybe change your uh, protocol and then look at it again and test it again and see how it response. Yeah. So what kind of things are we pulling up on, on genetics now? 
that would apply to athletic goals. In terms of like, uh, specifically, what do you mean? What are we seeing on a report that might help me with my athletic training goals? So, um, I mean, you know, it'll go into, for example, certain things you could do with your diet or lifestyle or supplements that can uh, enhance your training, certain ways that you can minimize injuries or if you're prone to injuries. Uh, You could also look at, you know, basically how your, you know, certain things that might make you a better athlete or maybe even a worse athlete, right? So there's always going to be things that make you better and worse. And you can, uh, you know, look at the things that are making you worse and see how you can improve upon your weaknesses. So what are some examples of that? So I would have to pull up uh, a report because I haven't personally, you know, my personal interests uh, kind of, they change, but uh, mine are, you know, related to like mood, cognitive function, because I'm kind of like, um, you know, I have four businesses and when you have four businesses, you're, you're basically training, you know, it's like kind of like a cognitive uh, marathon, right? And so mine are like cognitive function and we have a cognitive function report, mood, uh, gut health, just because I've always had gut issues. Uh, you know, um, I'm always trying to improve my mood. If, if I'm not sleeping well, then I would do that, you know, get a uh, look at my sleep report. Um, so, uh, to be honest, I haven't looked at the fitness report in some time. Uh, and just because it's like, everyone has to look at what is in their most interest. And, uh, for me, given that my, you know, given my situation, uh, you know, cognitive function, mood, um, gut inflammation, these kinds of things. And then also longevity is something I'm interested in. So, uh, if I have no particular interest at the time, uh, COVID is something I've been interested in, you know, for some time, but I go in waves, you know, it's kind of like at this point, you know, maybe my mood is worse or there's a lot of stress and I'll try to want to take care of that. If nothing is going on, I might go to my, uh, longevity report, uh, things like that. And so, uh, but if we pull up the, uh, the fitness report, what we have is uh, how you can maximize the health benefits of exercise, certain things you could do, uh, exercise-related injury risk, uh, which is what I mentioned. So there's tendon injuries and muscle injuries. Um, and in terms of the heart, health benefits of exercise, there's heart health, weight loss, boosting oxygen levels. And then there's um, you know, uh, endurance or power as well. We have that. So uh, you could see whether you're more endurance and more power. And if you are more than, you know, one or the other, you can look at some recommendations. And then um, and then we have attitudes towards exercise as well, such as desire to exercise or exercise frequency. But that's less, uh, you know, that, that's less, you know, obviously people have who are high level, uh, you know, I mean, they're obviously motivated, right? Um, Interesting. Yeah, maybe there's some genetics for desire to exercise, and you hear people proclaim that they hate running or they hate getting sweaty, and um, it might be, you know, something that um, could be could be tracked and identified, and maybe figuring out, you know, a way to make it more palatable to people who, for some reason, 
you know, just aren't feeling it whenever they've tried to move their body through space. Right, exactly. And so you're saying so, there's, there's genetic markers for certain things, everything you mentioned on the report? Yeah, for example, BDNF is, uh, is something that, uh, just as one example, can influence your desire to exercise. And you also and make more of it when you exercise. That's brain-derived neurotropic yeah. factor. So you're, in a, <laughs> right. you're, you're stuck in a, um, in a loop there if you're sitting on the couch right now listening to this, wishing you could have more BDNF, huh? And I think there's a, you know, there's a lot of that as well that I, I, like, for example, let's say BDNF is probably a good example because if you're not exercising, your BDNF is lower and, it's prob- and your desire to exercise is also lower, right? Uh, and so if you have a low variation of BD, you know, the BDNF variation where you have lower levels of BDNF, you have less motivation to exercise. But then um, if you actually exercise, then you're actually even more motivated when you're exercising. That's kind of what happens to me. Uh, one thing you mentioned is this connection between mood and genetics. And I'd love to explore that and what you've learned. And you're saying, you even mentioned that, you know, if you're, uh, you're in a bad mood one day, so you want to like dig deep into that report and make some optimization. So uh, what have you discovered on that level? So, I mean, yeah, when it comes to mood, um, you know, for me, for example, I realized that uh, serotonin, you know, serotonin system is really important for me. And Things like 5-HTP is, is important for me, which, you know, I've been taking a lot of supplements. I've always been biohacking and doing a lot of these things. But before the report, I kind of didn't realize how, how much uh, serotonin-related genes were impacting my mood. Mm. And, um, you know, there's, there's basically uh, genes related to neurotransmitters, neurogenesis, uh, synaptic plasticity, stress-related genes, right? So some people could be more uh, vulnerable to mood issues after stress. Uh, I mean, there's always some kind of vulnerability, but it could be more enhanced. Um, there's uh, inflammation could be related to mood. Uh, circadian rhythm can be very strongly related to mood. And uh, there's uh, motivation and reward response. Um, and then there's, you know, methylation, folate status. So th- there's there's different there's a bunch of different pathways that can relate to your mood and you want to understand which are the pathways, you know, which are the things that are uh, negatively impacting your mood and how can you counteract those uh, negative effects? Yeah. Interesting. It reminds me of this uh, Braverman test. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but it's a written, uh, it's a, it's a written questionnaire really detailed, really fun to take. You can look it up online and take it, listeners. Uh, but it identifies your your dominant uh, neurotransmitter of the four and your deficient neurotransmitter of the four, GABA, acetylcholine, serotonin, dopamine. And so you answer all these subjective questions like, I like big, loud parties and being the center of attention, you know, one through five. And then I like to read a book by myself in, in a corner. And so uh, through the subjective questionnaire, um, Braverman has discovered that he can get pretty accurate with, you know, what these dominant and deficient neurotransmitters are. Deficient meaning the most likely one that that you deplete uh, because of your personality style and so forth. And I would imagine that's highly genetically influenced. I mean, you're going to, you know, like to be the center of attention at a loud party, probably predominantly due to genetics 
and a little bit due to, you know, associations and stuff. But I think um, that that sounds like what you're getting at is just greater self-knowledge, especially when uh, you see your mood disrupted by uh, getting thrown into loud parties and being the center of attention, for example. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, you know, one way to like try to figure out how your neurotransmitters are working is through a questionnaire, right? And, uh, you know, that has some value. But then another way is, of course, your genetic, your genetics. Your genetics have a lot to say about your neurotransmitters and, you know, a bunch of different uh, aspects about mood. What about sleep, Joe? This is one that's uh, so fascinating to to many of us. And I've heard this statistic that there's something like an estimated 7% of the population can get by with less sleep than the commonly recommended seven to eight hours a night. But then uh, somewhere anywhere between, you know, less than 1% up to 7% is the different sightings of people that are, you know, adaptable to shorter sleep. And then apparently like 20 or 25% of us believe that we're one of those unique few that doesn't need to sleep. And in reality, we're all screwed. Most of us are screwed when we don't get enough sleep, but we're powering through it as part of uh, you know, modern life with hyperconnectivity and screens on at night, keeping us awake. So what do the genes tell us on that, on that topic? So there's a uh, quite a, f- quite a lot of genes related to sleep, just like a lot of other topics. Uh, what we have is things like insomnia, uh, you know, it disrupted sleep patterns in general. Uh, then we have chronotypes. Some people are morning, some people are night, uh, night owls, uh, sleep quality, sleep duration. So these, um, and then there's, you know, sleep disorders like narcolepsy, restless leg syndrome, grinding teeth, obstructive sleep apnea. But then, but, you know, sleep has, uh, you know, you could see a lot of people that, I mean, I've seen people, very, very significant variations in sleep duration, sleep quality. I mean, a lot of people um, that even try to sleep a long time can't. Right, and if they do, their sleep quality sometimes is not good. So I think um, those kinds of things I think are important to know if you have genetic weaknesses, especially, or just what your genetic weaknesses. So if you feel like your sleep quality is not good, uh, you want to obviously do things that enhance that, and you want to know where what genetic weaknesses are basically increasing your uh, problems with sleep quality or whatever it is. Yeah. So you're looking at a report and seeing some weaknesses. What, what would be some examples of a weakness? Would it be like poor, poor caffeine processing? So you can't have a cup of coffee after 11 a.m. or it's going to mess up your sleep versus someone else who's a fast metabolizer. I mean, what, what kind of things would be on a report like that? So we can give one example just based on there's, there's, you know, there's quite a few genes. It's, it's, you know, caffeine metabolism would have something to do with it, right? But uh, there's other, there's specific genes that have to do with a variety of functions. One that, you know, we spoke about was BDNF actually. So this comes up, uh, comes up again for sleep quality. And it turns out that, you know, BDNF will help you get more quality sleep. Now, some people are higher producers, some people are lower producers. And Essentially, if you're not producing enough uh, enough as much BDNF as some other people, right, 
your quality is not going to be as good. Now, there are ways to counteract that. Um, for example, my BDNF gene is lower, and I notice that if I don't get exercise or do things that increase BDNF, it could be getting enough light, exercise, my sleep quality will go down. Um, and, and I can track that too with, um, you know, uh, with various devices and whatnot. And I, I'm, I'm able to see that, you know, these kinds of things can, you know, they, they definitely increase my sleep quality. Now, knowing that it's from BDNF allows me to see what my, in part, right. There's other, other genes as well, but you know, I don't want to go into all the genes right now, but essentially what we're, what we're doing is looking at all your genes and, uh, you know, taking into account uh, all your genes and then giving you recommendations based on how you can improve your sleep quality or sleep duration or just sleep in general. And, uh, but it, yeah, if, if I, once I know that my BDNF gene is not working as well, then I know that I have to, you know, at the very least, I understand the reason why I have to uh, get exercise in order to have decent quality sleep. And we're talking, it's pretty dramatic with me. If I don't exercise one day, the quality of my sleep drastically goes down. Now, if, you know, if your audience is uh, working out a bunch and, you know, they have poor quality sleep, probably has to do with a different gene, right? And that's kind of where you, uh, you know, you want to look at other genes as well. What about with diet? I think that's probably the, the one of heightened interest when people are going to get their test. And I wonder, you know, can we determine with some genetic authority that uh, your carbohydrate sensitivity is at a certain level? So you're going to, um, you know, you're going to do better. Uh, you're going to fare better than um, the, the next person, if you, if you cut carbs and the other person can get away with more, like you mentioned at the start of the show and what else have we found in, in the diet space? I know you're familiar with the, the carnivore diet is exploding in popularity because a lot of people are healing from these mysterious illnesses that might be traced to, uh, sensitivity to plant toxins, which we're not really commonly uh, aware of in, you know, uh, mainstream, health and medical science, uh, but people getting rid of their leafy greens and all the important stuff we've been told to stuff down our face our entire life are having amazing healing stories from autoimmune and inflammatory conditions. So clearly there's a genetic sensitivity there uh, that's making uh, broccoli not the winning food for many people. And I wonder if that kind of stuff we can uh, plug into a genetic report and find out that we might be a candidate for even restrictive diets that are off the, the mainstream uh, smorgasbord? That's a great question. So there actually is a diet uh, to know, you know, to some degree, if you will do better on a carnivore diet. I actually do better on a carnivore diet, carnivore type diet, right? And I have that gene. The gene is not very common, especially my variation. You know, every with every... Uh, polymorphism or uh, change in, in your DNA, there's generally three options. You either have uh, none of the risk alleles, you have one of them, or uh, so it's or two of them, right? And so I actually have two of these risk alleles, and the percentage of the population who has that is around 3%. And what I found is that everyone who has that, that variation, 
they do better on a you know carnivore type diet. I mean, there's other genes that also have an impact, but there's one particular gene in the uh, it's the CNR1 gene actually, and it sounds like carnivore, but <laughs> it's it's actually uh, it's actually cannabinoid receptor one, and it turns out that um, you know uh, so. I actually spoke to Michaela Peterson about, you know, the carnivore diet and whatnot. And I was just curious if she had this gene because of how sensitive she is. My guess was that she did. So, you know, we were on the podcast and I was just, you know, it was pretty spontaneous. And I said, Hey, you have your genetics. Uh, you know, there's a 3% chance you have this gene in general, but I think you have it just because, you know, you do so poorly on, plants and all these other things. Uh, so she checked it and lo and behold, she had the same variation as me. And, you know, uh, the, the, if you have one risk allele, it's, you know, you still, there's, you know, it, you, you might, you'll do better. Like at least it's not as bad as two risk alleles. It's, it's kind of like a gradation of, you know, how much you would need that. And so we both had two alleles and I think it probably makes sense that there's about maybe 3% of the population who would do very well on a carnivore-type diet, right? And again, I can't say it's the only gene. It's just the most significant gene that I found. And it seems to have a significant impact based on you know clientele that I had whenever I strongly suspected that they were sensitive to lectins and other you know, grains and beans. They, they, they often had that. It was very, very likely that they had that gene. Um, you know, we're talking about like ninety percent. You know, and so uh, there's def- there's definitely something to that. And in terms of uh, so that that's what I would say about the carnivore diet. We can talk about other genes related to diet as well. Uh, just describe, explain a bit when you talk about a polymorphism and then a risk allele associated with the polymorphism. Can you um, bring that to uh, layman's terms for, for the listener? Yeah. So basically you get, you know, you have two sets of genetics, one from your mom, one from your dad. And, you know, so you get um, in, in, in a cell, you're going to have one allele, one variation from them. Uh, basically, you have this whole genetic code that is 3 billion base pairs. Out of that genetic code, there's around 10 million points that are different. Uh, I mean, there's more, but, um, but there's 10 million points that are, or 5 million points that are different within the population. And it's somewhat common. There's sometimes there's, you know, each individual has like a few variations or mutations that are unique to you, let's say, or like that are pretty rare in the population. Um, but beyond that, there's, you know, when we're talking about things that are somewhat common in the population, which is around, you know, minimum of 1% has a certain variation, let's say, we're talking about 5 million of these uh, variations. And these kinds of variations are what make us different, right? It's not that many. At the end of the day, we're 99. You know, nine percent similar, but it's that point one percent that could have a very big impact. It's kind of like, uh, you know, if, if you know chimpanzees are like ninety eight, ninety nine percent similar, but obviously there's a big difference between us and chimpanzees. 
Yeah, uh, so- it's amazing concept to grasp how similar we are. And when we go back to, you know, we've written about this in the Primal Blueprint and, and so forth, that um, when the first modern genetically identical Homo sapiens emerged about 160,000 years ago in East Africa, that's where we all, that's our lineage is all traced back to them. And when they first successfully left East Africa to colonize the entire globe, there's some estimates there were only like 120 people that were brave enough to head out. And so we all descend from a very, very small group of people in East Africa. That was about 60,000 years ago when we first left and we colonized. First, we went east over to uh, modern day India and all the way to Australia. Then we turned back and we finally made it up to Europe about 30,000 years ago. Uh, But this great book, The Sports Gene by David Epstein uh, states that, and this is, you know, genetic science, that the genetic diversity between two members of the same pygmy tribe in Africa today, who, whose lineage is pure, traced all the way back, they ne- their ancestors never left Africa, right? A primitive living society today. The genetic disparity between two members of the same tribe is greater than the genetic disparity between the entire rest of the world combined of people who, you know, descend from uh, other nations and have, you know, mixed ancestry. And it just blows my mind where if, if you went and looked at the two pygmies in question, they'd look alike, they'd sound alike, they'd talk alike. And then we're thinking, and this is probably a good topic to, you know, hit on a little bit now when we're having all this unrest and uh, racial divisiveness in, in modern society, when we're 99.99999% genetically similar and, you know, the skin color relates to how close our ancestors uh, live to the, the equator. And it's, uh, boy, it'd be nice insight for all of us to embrace, uh, even on that scientific level where you can, you know, just, just blow your mind with this idea that there's more genetic diversity in, in, uh, in, in the pygmies than the entire globe combined. Yeah. So like you said that, you know, the, you know, we're, we're really 99.9% similar, but sometimes that, you know, that 0.1% can have a, you know, significant impact on like gut function and other things. Um, and that's kind of where a lot of the, whether it's pigment or eye color or, you know, any number of things, so it, it can have, uh, an impact. And, you basically, the, what happened is over time, because people were in a certain environment, they, you know, um, certain variations kind of expand, they, they expanded in the population, right? Because it was more advantageous in a given environment. And so, you know, uh, when it comes to diet, let's say, there could have been some environments where it was more advantageous to uh, eat more carbs because that was more available, right? And people who ate more carbs, they had more energy maybe, they had more whatever. And, you know, so then more of those genes kind of started to uh, get reproduced and they became more common. Now, you know, um, with these variations, there, you know, even if one is more common, the the less common one didn't generally get weeded out of existence because there were, you know, in some situations, there were benefits from that. And so what we're left with is we kind of, right now, we're very homogeneous, right? It, it's, um, you know, because people have always been interbreeding. And, you know, you really like, you know, if you look at 
Ancestry or 23andMe, you'll see, hey, you know, we're, I'm like 10% this, 30% that. Um, there, there is a lot of, and even if you're a certain ethnicity, there's still a lot of diversity. Like you said, within the pygmies, there could be a huge amount of diversity. And so there's, there's a, quite a lot of diversity and it's hard to just know that if I'm of a certain ethnicity, then this is, you can't say that if you're of, of a certain ethnicity, then this is what I'm going to do better with. Uh, you really have to know what your unique genetic code has to say. And so, um, when it comes to these, yeah, so it's basically like one letter is is different in the genome, and that could have an impact on, let's say, how a protein functions in your body, and that could impact, let's say, uh, how well you do with carbs or fat or protein, um, and how well you do with them with regard to different topics like weight loss, uh, blood sugar balance, um, you know, uh, sports performance and uh a whole bunch of you know weight i mean weight is weight is a big one when it comes to like research on genetics and and diet right but uh yeah it, it really has an impact on quite a lot of uh it, you know there's a lot of different genes related to diet yeah i guess what's funny is we can figure these things out on the fly and bounce around through our lives and finally wake up and realize that the hot fudd Sundays that I could slam when I was 16 and 18 and 21, now they put me to sleep, you know, for the rest of the afternoon. Right. And um, right. so, you know, finally we, we stumble our way through the dark and, and figure out, we do some of our own genetic uh, optimization, but boy, to be able to go to the technology and, you know, reviewing these reports. And I like one comment you made earlier where you reference like going back and, and digging deep into your report again when you feel some mood instability or whatever. And I think that's an interesting concept because I know a lot of people out there that have run their, um, you know, genetic tests from whatever operation. It's sitting in their computer file. Uh, I ask them to send it to me and they can't find it. You know, it's, it's like a one-time hit and then they kind of go on with their life. So I think if we can you know, continue to experiment with diet. I mean, boy, that's what this, you know, this ancestral health scene is all about is, you know, constantly trying to, you know, expand our horizons and try different things. And that's why I'm, you know, I'm enthused about the carnivore uh, emergence because it's something wild and crazy that no one paid a second thought to a few years ago. And now people are really healing and feeling great. And it just represents this willingness to explore and experiment and be open-minded. And I think the same could be said for uh, the stuff you're doing at Self-Decode. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, pushing people forward. Yeah, the great thing about genetics is that you can take the test once and then you have your data forever, right? And your genetics is, is really your blueprint of your body. But no, Magic. I want to change. I want to change. I promise I can change. I'll be better. <laughs> imagine like you're, it's really like, imagine you want to do improvements on a house, right? And you just have no idea what's behind the walls or what's going on. You don't have any layer. When you have your genetics, you really have like the blueprint. You know, you have all the data. It's really, right now it's about basically uncovering the data and giving you the most relevant data for the topic you're interested in. That's why we break it down by topic because we can't tell you just in general what you need to do. You we have to tell you what you need to do based on, you know for a specific topic because you could have you know um 
sometimes actually, this is something interesting is that a, a gene could be weak in one way, but it could be uh, strong in another way. So it could be like, you know, maybe it, it's good for cognitive performance, but, uh, or for let's say fitness, but then if you're not training heavily, then you might, you know, increase your weight. Like you might have weight gain or something, right? So there is like these trade-offs as well. Uh, but in general, you know, um, having the data, I think is super important, right? You, you really want to have data for your, the blueprint of your body so that you can know how to impact your body in a more targeted way. And over time, we're just going to get more information, better analysis, and you could ride that wave because you already have your data. And that's really what it is. It's just getting better and better analysis over time. We're constantly working on that. And, but right now, you could get information that will help you in some way. And so that's, um, you know, but even, even though it's in its early days, you, you, you're not going to lose if you have your blueprint, right? And you just have to, you know, uh, learn what you can and have as targeted insights as, as is available. And what I, you know, when I use my genetics is like, it's, I just find it the most fascinating thing that I could read about because I'm really reading about how my body operates. And even if it's not something isn't, let's say a hundred percent, because there's, you know, there could be uh, many genes related to something, I'm getting closer to understanding my body. And, uh, you know, it's basically like think of a thousand piece puzzle. You know, every time I read a, a report or a blog post, a personalized blog post, I'm getting some puzzle pieces put together and the picture is making more sense. And so it's kind of like the most interesting, you know, uh, these reports and the blog is like this personalized novel about myself. And, and these personalized reports. So I just find that, you know, really, really interesting. And I, I'm always learning new things. That's what the incredible thing is. And I, I like that too, that I'm always kind of growing uh, as I learn more. And, um, you know, it's always giving me new ideas about what to experiment with. It's like, oh, this, I didn't realize that I have this gene. And I wonder how I would do with this, right? Based on a recommendation that we're giving. And so if you haven't tried it out, then that's something you want to try out. So I'm always getting like new ideas and new uh, things to try out. So let's say if you have a carnivore gene, the CNR1 gene, uh, you know, you would say, okay, I really want to think about the carnivore diet. Not that it's 100% that it's the best diet for me, but it's something that I should, you know, it should be on my radar and radar and I should experiment with it. So that's kind of like, how you want to think about the analysis at this stage. You know, in the future, it could be like, you know, we're 100% sure that this is what you should be doing right now. And, uh, you know, you should just listen to this. But right now, it's, it's more like, um, you know, we're giving you really good ideas based on your genetics, what to try out first. And we give you this prioritized list. And I think that's, you know, that's just getting your genetics once is it can never be a bad investment, right? Because you always have that data. Love it. Yeah. Blending science with personal experimentation and constant quest for doing better peak performance. Joe Cohen, I appreciate you spending time with us, founder of Self Decode. How can we learn more about what you're doing there? So uh, people can learn more by going to selfdecode.com. And we do have a 
risk assessment on the homepage that you could take if you're worried about COVID, let's say. You can see what your risk of hospitalization is or uh, dying based on, you know, based on people that have similar characteristics in terms of age, gender, uh, fitness, things like that. And so I think, uh, you know, that's important. And then we also obviously have the genetic report, uh, which not only deals with COVID, but also deals with respiratory infections in general. And, you know, uh, it seems like there's this, you know, new virus coming up. There's always viruses coming up. And uh, it turns out that respiratory infections are one of the, you know, one of the top 10 killers in, in the world, right? And uh, especially the United States. So, and this is before COVID came along. So um, even, even if you're someone who doesn't, you know, particularly think COVID is the biggest deal, uh, respiratory infections are a big deal. And you want to know that, you know, how can you boost your immune system in a way that, you know, especially if you're getting sick a lot or, you know, if you're at a high risk group or something, how can you, what, what can you do to uh, improve your underlying health as, as it relates to, uh, you know, your immune system and dealing with respiratory infections and COVID. So All yeah, right. well selfseco.com. And uh, that's pretty much it. Thanks a lot, Joe. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Da, 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 da. Primal Blueprint listeners don't compromise on pantry classics. Whether you're going keto, paleo, in the middle of a whole 30-month, or adding to your Primal-approved arsenal, Primal Kitchen has a full range of mayo, ketchup, dressings, and oils that add flavor and variety to any meal without ever compromising on ingredient quality. From avocado oil-based mayos bursting with flavors like kicky chipotle lime, creamy classic, zesty garlic aioli, or savory pesto, to unsweetened ketchups and organic mustards, there's a condiment to complement every taste bud. Be sure to stock up on Primal Kitchen avocado oil, extra virgin olive oil, and new balsamic vinegar of Modena to add ease and great flavor to any dish, whether you're grilling, baking, broiling, braising, sautéing, or stir-frying. Primal Blueprint listeners can get their favorites 20% off when they use the code PRIMALBLUEPRINT at checkout.